This is ASIN, the Association for the Study of Ethnicity and Nationalism. To find out more, visit asin.ac.uk. This seminar is a part of our ASIN seminar series, which is called Ethnicity, Nationalism and the South. So, today Professor Thomas Holland Eriksson from the University of Oslo, Professor of Social Anthropology, will talk about the personhood, nationhood and the other ways of belonging or not. So, uh, let me introduce you to... Uh, let, let me introduce him to you. Tom Solon Eriksson is a professor of social anthropology at the University of Oslo, Weisset. His fields of research include identity, nationalism, globalization, and identity politics. A considerable portion of Eriksson's work has focused on popularizing social anthropology and conveying basic cultural relativism as well as criticism of Norwegian nationalism in uh, Norwegian public debate. So he has written the basic textbook using introductory courses in social anthropology at most Scandinavian universities. So the book Small Places, Large Issues in English is also used in introductory courses in many other countries and has been widely translated. So as has uh, his other major textbook, Ethnicity and Nationalism and Anthropological Perspectives. Uh, between 2004 and 2010, uh, Thomas directed an interdisciplinary research program, Cultural Complexity in Norway, so at the University of Oslo. And in 2011, Professor Eriksson was awarded an advanced grant from the European Research Council, and he now directs research on three major crises of globalization, economic finance, environment, climate, and identity culture. Uh, so his selected works uh, in English include the ethnicity and nationalism, small places, large issues, common denominators, ethnicity, nationalism, and politics of compromise in Mauritius. So a story of anthropology, tyranny of modern past and slow time in the information age, globalization studies in anthropology, and what is anthropology, and engaging anthropology. So uh, our seminar is going to last about one and a half hour. So for the first forty-five minutes, uh, Professor Eriksson will talk, and for the last forty-five minutes, you will have a chance to ask your questions and then you will answer. So please welcome and uh, join. Well, thanks very much, Guru Kondan. Thanks very much for for inviting me to uh, to come here uh, and. Um, talk a little bit about uh, um, some of the, uh, I think, most complicated questions to do with nationalism studies. Namely, I'm going to focus on the relationship between the person, the community, and the nation. And in doing so, I'm going to uh, draw on, you might say, two bodies, okay, of empirical, I should say empirical experience. One is a research uh, project that I've been directing in the suburb of Oslo, which is uh, probably the most super diverse place we've got, okay, in the country. I mean, some years ago, the concept of super diversity came up, and I see that it's now been fairly widely used by social scientists 
been talking about a new kind of diversity, a sort of accelerated form of diversity, characterizing a number of cities. And it was said that, well, you know, in London now, more than 300 languages are customarily spoken. Many of the new minorities do not have a background from the empire. They come from all over the place. They're dispersed. They're very, it's very hard for statisticians to work out, you know, where they live and, and who they are and how long they're going to stay. And um, reflecting on this, I, I just glanced at the population statistics for Oslo, which is a fairly peripheral, fairly small European city. And it turned out that, um, well, in just one of the 16 boroughs of Oslo, 163 languages were spoken, which is also, I mean, not bad, you know, for a peripheral city. So we also have diversity, although that is not the kind of image which is usually projected from Norway. So I'm going to talk a bit from that, that particular place, which is crucial. Um, in many cases, in many uh, respects, when it comes to uh, ideas about uh, national identity and national integration and so on, multiculturalism, all these tricky questions that we're dealing with all over the place nowadays. And the other piece of empirical material, and that is more, you might say, empirical experience rather than research, derived from a small town on the south Norwegian coast where I have spent uh, the summer holidays in the last 18 years or so. A very different kind of community. And I'm going to make some comparisons between these with a view to trying to elucidate and trying to inspire some reflections on this relationship between person, community, and nation. Uh, it's quite clear that uh, there is um, a way of imagining the nation as a metaphorical kin group or as a metaphorical place. In political anthropology, we generally, at least that's where we, where we start in political anthropology, we generally think of uh, political communities as being based on place, we're now talking about traditional societies, place or kinship. Okay? Place or kinship. And uh, in many communities, there may be tensions between place and kinship because the people who live in the same place do not necessarily belong to the same kin groups. So, for example, in Evans Pritchard's classic work on Manua of Sudan, that is a key topic, the tension between place and kinship. The fact that you, you may end up in a protracted conflict with a different clan or a different lineage. The only problem is that some of the members of that clan or lineage are your neighbors. So there has, has to be ways of negotiating this relationship between place and kinship. I find that this simple distinction also sheds light on some of the difficulties we have in talking about uh, uh, national identities nowadays. The tension, the problematic tension between race and tension. So, in other words, the nation is imagined, I'm just positing this now, you may feel free to disagree afterwards, is frequently imagined as an imaginary place or an imaginary kingdom. Okay. Um, as a place. And that kind of place, very often, is conceptualized as a community. Okay? Community. People who have multiplex relationships. Who have a sense of deep shared identity. And uh, frequently, if possible, a shared history. And as Ernest Gellner said, in many ways, uh, if they don't have a shared history, they have to invent it. And you know, do their best, you know, to create that shared history and make it as deep and profound as possible. 
Um, some places have that shared identity, um, you know, and some had it, has it thrust upon them. <laughs> some have to invent it. The first place that I'm going to present to you does not uh, have that kind of uh, shared identity. Creating a sense of community there is hard work. It doesn't come by itself. Okay. Um, also, is a city which looks roughly like this. Okay, you have a fjord here, and you have some forest around it, and it's been growing in a northeasterly and southeasterly direction along the metro lines for a number of years, with satellites, towns, sort of growing into the uh, what, what used to be farmland and has have been, been developed into urban areas. It's divided. There's a river. Okay, on the east side of the river. I grew up knowing people who had never been to the east side. They'd been to Bali and to London and to Berlin, but they had never been, they had never crossed the river. Because that was, you know, it's just like an east end. And there's a theory about why, I'm not going into that now, there's a theory about why in some of these West Atlantic, or, you know, West European cities, the east end became the east end. Because the, uh, the prevailing winds came from the west. So they got the stink from the bourgeoisie, you see, whereas the bourgeoisie didn't get the stink from the working class. Because in, in also, it doesn't really make sense because you have afternoon sun on the east side. So it, would, it should be a more attractive side, but it isn't. So you have that uh, very strict, and, and many people are shocked by learning this because they hear about Scandinavia as being this very egalitarian, social democratic welfare kind of society. And then they come to Oslo and they discover that there's a very, very strict uh, division. In fact, where I live, I live here, okay. we're near the university. Had I moved one kilometer east, my life expectancy would have gone down by 14 years. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's the difference between Sweden and Morocco. So it can be fairly stark. And on the east side, we, we have now these, uh, these satellite towns. We zoomed in on one of them. Here, uh, where a group of us uh, did feed work. On and off for a couple of years. Trying to not find out about ethnic relations primarily, because lots of other people do that. I mean, it's a big industry, ethnic relations in these complex areas. But looking at conditions for uh, belonging to place. Okay? We were focusing not on kinship or metaphorical kinship in that ethnic sense, but on place. What are the conditions for uh, belonging uh, to, to this place? And as I said, um, creating a sense of place in a new uh, suburb with a lot of flux, with a lot of mobility, um, with all forms of complexity that you can imagine, both in terms of class and in terms of ethnicity. Creating a sense of place there is hard work. Talking here about a suburb of about 10,000 people, uh, until the 1980s, Mostly ethnic Norwegians, now increasingly dominated by minorities. And at the primary school, I mean, there are two primary schools, okay, at all of the primary schools in this particular place, 98% of the children have a non Norwegian uh, origin. I mean, many of them are born in the country, okay, but their parents were not. So they're classified as second generation immigrants. The largest uh, group being, as the largest uh, non European minority group in Norway as such, uh, of Pakistani origin. Other large groups are of Somali origin. There are quite a few Poles nowadays, 
posts are, are, are emerging as the largest, in fact, uh, overall largest immigrant group in the country. And uh, there are Tamils from uh, Sri Lanka and Vietnamese and, you know, a smattering of other nationalities. So you have that kind of, that kind of complexity. Uh, and they are ranging from people who have lived there all their lives and have lived in Norway virtually all their lives uh, to people who arrived last week. So you have this, you know, this, this kind of complexity. When we go into a typical low-rise block of flats, because they, they don't have high-rise block of flats, you go into typical low-rise block of flats, looks like this, okay? and you have sort of one one flat, one apartment on each side. And you go in there and you knock on the doors. In this flat, you'll find that uh, the uh, inhabitants are a Somali single mother and her five children. She speaks very little Norwegian. She covers herself up. Uh, so she uh, is considered a very weakly integrated person in Norwegian society. I mean, doesn't speak the language well, covers herself up, um, doesn't really know how to deal with the welfare system. When the tax return form arrives once a year, she throws it in the rubbish because she thinks it's some kind of advertisement. And as every Scandinavian knows, the tax return form is the single most important document in your life. <laughs> it's where you show that you're a good citizen and that you're a good me member of, the, of this, of the imagined community. And she even has to use her children as interpreters when the social workers come. It's not, it's not allowed, it's not legal to use children as interpreters, but they do in practice. So uh, she lives there again with the five children. On the other side, uh, there's, a, there's a single ethnic Norwegian man in his late thirties. He's unemployed, so he's on welfare. But he gets enough money to get his sort of twice a year trips to Spain, you know, to Southern Europe, okay, to get rid of sun, to get drunk, you know, that sort of thing. Um, he's, he plays a lot of computer games, World of Warcraft, that kind of thing, watches TV, and he has no difficulties knowing just, I mean, which buttons to push when he goes into the welfare office to get a little bit extra, okay, a little bit more than he's entitled to. He's sort of fully uh, integrated in that way. And he's in full command of the remote control. And he knows exactly, you know, when to laugh when there's a comedy show. So he's fully sort of culturally integrated. His only problem is that he doesn't know anything. You know? I mean, that, that's one of the first things that struck me when I started to feel in this area. It was not so much cultural conflicts. Yeah, I mean, there was some talk about the new mosque that they were building. But it was not so much because it was a mosque, it was because it was an Ahmadi mosque, okay, uh, um, Muslim minority. But uh, that was not really a big issue, but one thing that struck me was loneliness. I mean, that there are so many, mostly single men, who don't know what life and, But he's perfectly sort of, I mean, he can walk out on the street and nobody would, uh, would you know, give him sort of nasty, a nasty look, unlike, unlike the Somali woman. That's another sort of destiny. And they don't, they, don't, they don't know each other, only by appearance. Never say hello. In the third flat, just to give you an illustration of the kind of complexity we're talking about here, in the third flat, you have um, an Iranian couple in the 50s. The children have moved out, and the children, one of them is studying engineering, and the other is training to be a doctor. 
Okay? Two children, just like Luigi's. Okay? Um, and they both have jobs in the civil service. And when you walk in, I mean, one of the things that you notice is that they have a big bookshelf. In, 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 in the living room, they have a big bookshelf. On the left side of the bookshelf, all the uh, books are in Arabic script. The books in, in Farsi. Okay? Iranian books about politics, collections of poetry, history, books from Iran that relatives have sent them, and so on. The other half are Norwegian books, mostly novels. Okay? Um, and when you ask them, I mean, you know, who are you? What's your identity? If you were stupid enough to ask that question, they would shrug and say that, you know, um, yeah, I mean, we're a bit of this, I'm a bit of that. Okay, so that's just an illustration of the kind of complexity. I'm not going to talk about the, the, the poor family. Because there isn't, uh, there isn't time. I just wanted to illustrate what kind of complexity we get in this, uh, in this sort of uh, community. The children, the 98% of non-Norwegian origin, we tend to identify themselves as foreigners. And they ask, you know, we foreigners. I mean, we Albanians are the best of the foreigners, you know, because we look like Norwegians. We don't look different, like you Pakistanis and Somalis and so on. Whereas the Pakistanis say, no, we are the best foreigners because we're the most numerous. So we have all this sort of informal power. Um, and uh, in other words, they don't identify when you ask them as primarily Norwegian, but they say, you know, we're foreign. Although they may have lived in the country all their lives. As I said, hard work to create a sense of community. And there's flux. There are transnational connections. There are people who cannot afford to buy a PlayStation for the children because they have to send remittances to family. Or because they invest in a house that they're going to build in, in uh, the Punjab, in Pakistan, um, when they retire. Um, and uh, in, in the school, the teachers are complaining that there are, there are children who turn up at the age of six who don't speak a word of Norwegian. How can we teach them? Because they haven't gone to kindergarten. They've said at home. So, um, so you have that kind of, uh, this is that kind of community, okay? Um, it's, uh, it's, it's a heterogeneous, sprawling kind of community with overlapping networks and with a very weak sort of sense of, um, Place. The other place is uh, down on the coast. I'll just show you on the map. Okay, where it is. Let me see. This is what the Scandinavian Peninsula look like, looks like. I mean, uh, after Denmark became right wing, we no longer include them. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> but now they have a change of government, so maybe after all. <laughs> um, Anyway, this is what it looks like. This is where Oslo is, okay? And uh, along, the, along the coast, there are a number of small towns with a long history associated with shipbuilding, whaling, until uh, some decades ago, okay? Some of these towns built the wealth of, on, on, uh, of whaling and, uh, and on the merchant fleet. And around here, about three hours' drive from the capital, is the idyllic the uh, town of Kravira, which in the Norwegian imagination is associated with a good life. It's associated with summer, you know, with seagulls and swimming and sailing and white wine, you know, and that sort of thing. And many um, middle-class uh, people from the Oslo region would have a second home in that area, a summer house, where, where they spend, uh, spend July and weekends. 
and it is also a town of about 10,000. But it's integrated in a very different way to Fuset, as it's other places called. I'll reveal the name now because everybody knows. I mean, we used the pseudonym when we published on it, okay? but everybody knows where it is because it's hard to conceal these things in a small place. It doesn't really matter where it is, it could have been anywhere. Maybe it could have been in England. Yeah. That's, that's not, not my point, that this is a place in Norway, but the point is that it's a particular kind of heterogeneous, super diverse uh, urban environment which is now increasingly typical of uh, European cities and which have to be dealt with in the context of nationalism, or in the context of national identity. What are we going to do with that? It's an anomaly in the uh, um, eyes of the nation. Nothing's right. doesn't have a deep history. Uh, you know, um, it's not associated with, you know, with, with, with nature, with agriculture, with any of these uh, sort of the traditional uh, um, activities that we think about uh, regarding, uh, uh, you know, what kind of place Norway is. Whereas, yeah, it is, you know, that is, it's quintessentially Norwegian. It's, um, it's also about 10,000 people. Most of them have lived there all their lives, or in the region. Which means that if you meet someone on the high street, whom you don't know, or at a party, whom you don't know, which is quite rare, it could happen. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, everybody's been, you know, to school, or your, your brother went to here, and your sister, you know, had a relationship, or, or you, your father, you know, he, he used to go hunting with the other guy's uncle, I mean, you have all these kinds of connections, but if you would happen to it's a, it's a one-horse town, so it's just one main street, okay, where all the shops are basically, pedestrian area. If you happen to meet someone uh, whom you don't know, or at the party, or at the pub, and he would introduce himself, and he would say, you know, okay, my name is Nielsen, Nielsen, okay? And then they would ask, well, are, are, you, are you the Nielsen's from Connefoss, or are you the Nielsen's from Jungfriedland? I mean, let me know that. There are two Nielsen families, so I'm not related. And then he would say, well, you know, we are the Nilsons from, I'm the cousin of this person and so on, from, from Commerfels. Ah, well, in which case, I know who your uncle was. Uh, so it's that kind of place. Multiplex relationships. It's a really the, uh, yeah, multiplex, okay? People know each other in many different ways. And uh, you have uh, dense, homogeneous networks. The anthropologist Sandra Wallman wrote interestingly about this in the context of London in the 1980s which he compared two neighborhoods, one heterogeneous, one homogeneous. There are multiplex relationships. In other words, uh, people tend to know each other in many, many ways. And in Prague, which is, as I, again, I say, this is a quintessential, this is a metaphor for Norway, not the Norwegian community. Could have been somewhere up here, okay? Could have been here, could have been here. Doesn't really matter where it is. The point is that it's a small community, and it is somehow the embodiment of the nation the material, as it were, appearance of the nation, where everybody knows each other, where it's very cozy, it's very secure, where you have all the positive sides of this cultural intimacy, which means that uh, people don't really have to say much because they have a sort of an implicit understanding of each other. There's no need for intercultural skills. And there are uh, multiplex and uh, strong ties. So that if someone from here moves to here, and gets a job at the University of Bergen, and gets a student, even if he doesn't know that student personally, from that time, he would take sort of special care 
to make sure that this student is doing all right. You would feel a special responsibility. It's not kinship of this place. And it's a bit similar. You see, you see what I mean? I have a special responsibility because he's from my town. Um, so being, being from the same place is important in this, kind of, in this kind of country, as in many countries. Not in all countries, but in many countries. So you have uh, strong ties. People do different things uh, together. They live in the same place as they go to school, and they work largely in the same places. And when they go out in the evening, there are three or four places where they can go out, and they all would go out to the same places. That food is set by contrast. During the day, half of the population are not uh, even present because they work or they go to school somewhere else. One of the researchers on our project lives in Fuset. He has to take the metro all the way up here to go to work at the university. Um, and he once asked me, when we were beginning to do our feedback, he said that, you know, I'm very curious to find out what it's like at Fuset during the day, between 8 in the morning and 5 in the afternoon, because I'm never there, yeah? Because he's always somewhere else. He's at work or in town doing something else. Uh, and I could tell him that, well, half the people who live there are gone, but there are lots of other people who come in who work there. So there is this transience. You can notice, if you stand outside, as I've done sometimes, you stand outside the metro station in the morning or in the afternoon, and you notice the mobility of people. And there are about as many people going out as there are coming in. So most of the people who work there, who work in the local municipal administration, for example, and who devise projects, you know, how to improve the uh, quality of the infrastructure and so on. They would live in other parts of the city. So, the, so, so there is this uh, constant feeling of flux. In addition, the fact that people move in and out quite a lot. Um, there is, um, there is this, sort of this, this mobility. But I think, you know, um, as I said, as in many of these uh, small uh, towns and large villages, there's a very strong sense of continuity, strong, strong sense of historical uh, identity. And people know each other in many different ways. Okay. So, in other words, the kind of self, the kind of person you become by living in Kaura is a Norwegian person. The kind of person you become by living in Fulusev is a more fragmented, more fragmented person with conflicting loyalties, with uh, with many overlapping networks, partly overlapping networks, uh, with no strong sense of rootedness, you know, in many cases anywhere. I mean, because if you were to ask these young children or adolescents who define themselves as foreigners, so, I mean, what is it like where you're from then, if you're not from here? They wouldn't have a clue, because they may never have been there. You know, I mean, uh, they, may be, uh, they may be from... Uh, from Somalia, but never been to Somalia. Or they may be Pakistani, but they've only been there on some very long and very boring summer holidays with grandparents. <laughs> Nothing happened, you know. Just sitting around longing to get back to a place where they see themselves and are being seen by outsiders as foreign or as not quite belonging. So it's a, it's a much, much more complicated kind of identification you get there. Here you get everything somehow in one place. You get, you know, kinship, you get a place, you have a, a narrative about your biography, you have the implicit culture, uh, you have the cultural intimacy, uh, laughing of jokes, the sharing uh, some of the same values, and so on and so forth. So, um, so this is, um, this is a, a, a contrast that, uh, um, 
quite clearly has a bearing on um, the kind of community we, we imagine for the nation. So what I've been saying so far is that this is a kind of community which somehow um, is a downscaled version of the nation, whereas this is not. And this is one of the big debates, as in many European countries nowadays, trying to redefine themselves, because that's really what we're doing now. I mean, our research project was called Cultural Complexity in the New Norway, and uh, by saying the New Norway, there's an indication here that something has changed, or something is changing, and we're not quite sure what it is. But we know that it has something to do with national identity, and what is the meaning, which is a big question in all uh, social theory, I mean, the largest question, what is the meaning of the word we? And what does the word we mean? Okay. Of course, it means lots of different things. It's situational. But um, um, you see the point. We, as a nation, what does that mean? But, and now I, um, um, I should perhaps, uh, yes, I, I should, yeah, I'll, uh, I'll move on uh, to the next part of the argument uh, in a little while, uh, but uh, a couple of things more. What is it that creates a sense of community? Well, as I said, it's, it's familiarity, it's networks, it's uh, being connected with each other, and somehow projecting this connectedness to the nation. Being from here means being part of, of the nation. But it has also been said by a South African anthropologist who came to Norway, and he was here on Constitution Day, the 17th of May. Great, great day. It's a field day for any anthropologist. You know, to, uh, I mean, there was a there was a Swedish ethnologist who wrote a book about the 17th of May, and it took her a long time because it only happens once a year. <laughs> you see, and she had to. She wanted to do fieldwork in, in Oslo, in Stavanger, in Bergen, in some of the main cities, but also in a couple of small places. So she had to come back you know, every year, and then finally uh, she, she wrote the book. So that's a big day of celebration, it's very interesting, because it is, uh, uh, according to quantitative social scientists, something like 94% of the population celebrate the 17th of May in one way or another. 94%. I mean, that's not, I mean, uh, uh, in some other countries where I've done feedback, they have national days, uh, but they don't take them seriously. Whereas here, it's very much, a, we're very much talking about the nationalism from below. And there are speeches in local communities, okay, everywhere there is a speech on the 17th of May, and there are two ingredients which are always present. One of them is uh, the sacrifices that were made uh, during the Second World War, which was a big sort of uh, ritual, I mean, a big sort of ritual event in modern Norwegian history, Second World War. It has been calculated that something like 80% of the books that have been written about so-called modern Norwegian history are about the Second World War. <laughs> Which means that every person who was in the resistance has had this biography written at least once. <laughs> <laughs> you see, I mean, that's how, that's how, his, that's how has, national history is being made. So it's a big, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a very, big, uh, very big day. But what this anthropologist discovered when he was in Norway on the 17th of May was not national cohesion, but rather fragmentation. He said that. And now I'm moving to the second part of my argument, okay? Uh, you're saying that, no, this is, it looks like a tribal society because of the prevalence of fortresses. Because these fortresses are not generically national. They're from a small place. They're all regional. And there's a very strict grammar, informal set of rules regarding who is entitled to wear which fortress. And there's been, I mean, just like the hijab has spread among Muslims in the last 25 years, the fortress has spread in the same way and largely for the same reasons among Norwegian women. 
so uh, almost everybody has one now. Um, very expensive garments. And, uh, and there's a strong sort of uh, set of cultural rules regarding who's entitled to wear which one. You have to have a connection to the place. So if you don't have relatives in Nestetema, uh, which is up here, which is one of the heartlands of national romanticism, it's just too bad. You cannot wear a Nestetema fortress. <laughs> You're not allowed to. Well, you can buy it in a shop, but everybody would know you were fake. <laughs> but if all of your parents came from there, although you've never been there yourself, you're, you're still entitled to you can, you can do it, you know. You can do it. So, uh, so you see, it's a highly interesting sort of cultural um, um, notions around this. But that's, um, that's a different lecture, so I'm not going to give it now. Uh, but uh, the point is that he said that it's like a tribal society because everybody has their own distinctive regional identity and they're very conscious about it. And people are very conscious about the dialects. And it's not considered a good thing to lose your dialect when you move to town. You know, that, that, is, that is considered a sign of bad character. So it's um, um, uh, because it's, it's somehow uh, uh, rejecting your own origins, uh, changing your diet. So that's, uh, that's one thing. I mean, uh, this, this sort of uh, community, um, tribal. I'm coming back to that in a little while. Because I now move to the to the second part of the argument. I feel said very few very few of the minority children they wear uh, a folk dress. Um, they would wear other kinds of clothes, uh, but they still celebrate the, uh, the the national day and they wave the little Norwegian flags. There's been some controversy around this. This is a footnote, okay? But there's been some controversy around this. But it illustrates perhaps some of the dilemmas we have when we now try to redefine the nations in order to accommodate this kind of diversity. Of course, if we don't. You're going to end up in a country where 10% of the population or more um, feel, are going to continue to feel foreign. Uh, there, was a, there was a debate around the use of flags during the National Day. For a long time, all the flags were just the Norwegian flag, which is cross flag. I mean, it's all the way in the Scandinavian tradition, you know, with a, it's actually a Danish flag superimposed on the Swedish one, which is an official secret. We don't talk about that, but that's what it is. That's how it came about in the 19th century, when Norway was struggling culturally and politically to, to, to define its own identity as distinctive from Denmark and Sweden, the colonial powers in the region. Um, uh, for a long time, all flags were Norwegian. Then, uh, after the 1950s, someone came up with the idea that maybe a United Nations flags would also be nice. So there were a few UN flags you know, to, to symbolize uh, global solidarity. For which Norway had, was trying to market itself, you know, as one of its trademarks. Way back into the mists of oblivion, uh, and on the one hand, um, where, I mean, many of the, uh, the people who come from Prague, they would have family names, which are also names of local places, you know, from islands, from little sort of nooks uh, and um, crannies in the region. So they have this deep history. And some of them even have family names which could be recognized on, uh, on street names in the town because these are families which have lived for centuries, perhaps, in gardens. Perfect for nation building. Whereas Puruset has its sprawling, transnational, uh, hectic, nervous kind of identity where people are not quite sure who they are. Um, they don't have this sort of fixed, this fixed identity. So which, which serves as the best model for the nation? Now, uh, one, okay, 
I'm spending a little more than four or five minutes, not much. Uh, because there's one thing I need to say before I move on to the second part of the argument, which I'm going to do much faster than the first part, okay? uh, which is that uh, one typical uh, complaint in uh, multicultural communities uh, in Norway, as elsewhere, is um, the fact that many people of minority backgrounds do not contribute to communal activities. Okay, communal activities. There's a key term in Norway, it was voted the national word. Yeah, people are crazy about national things sometimes. <laughs> it was voted the national word. And that is a word which they claim doesn't exist in any other language, okay? And which represents communal work when people come together to, you know, I mean, to tidy up uh, the, the basement of the local flats, or, you know, to, um, you know, to, to do something together, okay? Or you, or you sell hot dogs for the, uh, for the children's football team, you know, every parent has to come, you know, and, uh, and do this. And the word is do not, okay? Do not, which, uh, it's true that the word doesn't exist in any other language, doesn't it exist in Swedish, but the phenomenon, of course, exists in lots of places, communal work, people come together. And there were complaints that many of these uh, minority parents, they never showed up. They never came to the do now, for example. Their children, I mean, the children were active in sports, but the parents never drove them to away matches, or they, you know, and they never turned up to sell hot dogs on Sundays, and so on. And uh, we looked into this, and we found that uh, the main explanation is that there is a tension here between place and kinship, place and kinship, which, which has a bearing on personal, on how you see yourself as a person. Because uh, when they didn't show up, when they didn't take part in these community activities, A, it could have something to do with gender segregation. The, the, the mother couldn't, you know, for, for religious and cultural reasons, she couldn't. Or maybe for religious reasons, she couldn't sell hot dogs anyway, because they contained pig. Um, the fathers couldn't do it for two reasons. They had three jobs, and they had kinship obligations. So whenever they had a few hours off, they had to drive off to see some some uh, family somewhere else. Okay, the brother, the cousins, etc. Who said the Norwegians then living in nuclear families, more isolated? So that's one. Uh, in other words, that makes every anthropologist think that well, we're here talking about the sociocentric person. The sociocentric person, the person who is, sees himself not as an individual, but as embedded in a social fabric. Okay? Based on kinship. Which doesn't fit with the idea of a nation, where there is a kind of umbilical cord, right, between me and the nation. And everything between is voice. I should be connected directly to the nation. Or to the, uh, uh, the dude, not as it were, as the uh, embodiment of what that means, as the exemplification of what it means to be part of the nation. So having a parochial identity seems to be in conflict with um, with being a member of the being a full member of the nation. Um, but and now I move on to the last part of the argument, and then we can have a discussion afterwards. I, I have now said that there are certain things about the construction of personhood in Fugeset, this multi-ethnic area, which seems to not fit too well with the grammar of national integration, national identity. 
They have transnational obligations towards kin, kin you know, in Pakistan, in Somalia, and so on. Uh, some of the Turkish parents even did, never watched Norwegian TV. So there, there are lots of generational conflicts. This can be recognized wherever in Europe, I think. They want to watch Turkish TV programs. And there are even, in some of these housing properties, conflicts over whether or not they should be allowed to have a satellite dish. Because really, they're not allowed to have satellite dishes. Okay? They've got cable television. But they can get all these Scandinavian and a few foreign channels, but no Turkish. But they need satellite dishes to get the Turkish channels. So there are conflicts over this, whether or not to allow these satellite dishes. And within the family, there are conflicts between the parents and the children about whether they should watch Turkish or Norwegian TV. And the children tell the parents, look, I mean, you, you people never want to integrate. You only think about your family, and you still have your head in Turkey. I mean, you know, you're never going to be a sort of good member of this community. And the, um, and the father was sort of grumble a bit and say, well, all right, who pays the bill? You know, who pays for your education? You know, and so well, who buys your clothes? Shut up, you know? And then we get this kind of um, very classic argument. And now, uh, I move on to the, to, to my, uh, to, the, to the next part of the, argument, of the argument, because what I'm going to say is that, paradoxically perhaps, Furuset as a locality is a, as a, as a community, probably a better model for the new nation than Kyoto. Okay. okay, why am I saying this? Okay. And I'm going to try to persuade you. And if you're not persuaded, I'd be happy to get objections. In the second generation, the first generation, it's true, they have a construction of a person which doesn't really fit with the nation. But there is a weak loyalty towards the nation, a weak sense of belonging, with many exceptions, but on the whole. And this only stands to reason. I mean, if you, if you, if you move to a new country as an adult, and certainly if that is a country which has a very strong cultural nationalist identity, it would be hard for you. You have difficulty, you struggle with the language, like this Somali, uh, You struggle with the language, you find that, um, the food is strange. There's hardly anything you can eat. I mean, you hear stories about African refugees in Danish villages who walk into the local supermarket. And they can't find anything they can eat. Everything is alien and, and sort of dangerous. And, uh, and there are many other things. But by the time we reach the second generation, something very interesting happens. Namely that this kinship-oriented person is somehow transformed in the space of one generation into an individual. Okay. If you, if you can, if you, if you, if you don't mind my using these slightly dated terms for the sake of the argument, the sociocentric, sociocentrism. It's my community, and my community is not the national one. My community is not the national one. It's every religion, but it's largely based on kinship. And it's deterritorialized to some extent, because some of the people I'm, uh, I have committed towards live in another country. So you, you, there's a move from, with, Documented the move from sociocentrism to individualism in the space of one generation. Which means that the second generation, I mean, one member, as I just mentioned to Durkan as we were having tea, uh, one member of this second generation, uh, she's now the Minister of Culture in the country. And uh, speaks with a characteristic Southwest Norwegian dialect. It's very hard, you know, to. Uh, to write her off as, a, as an invading foreigner when you speak with that uh, when we speak with that uh, kind of um, with that kind of dialect, 
the heterogeneous uh, in the heterogeneous uh, suburb, um, you find that uh, uh, there is um, a way of dealing with difference which has been developed over a few decades. I just read, I mean, just read a piece uh, piece of research from a from a part of London where something similar seems to have been taking place. We can discuss that also later on. Uh, in Krav, you know, you have these dense, okay, dense homogeneous networks, which means that you can take a lot of these for granted. Cultural similarity can be taken for granted. Here you have these scattered, okay, scattered and heterogeneous. And you have uh, here you have in Kaga you have a lot of uh, strong ties, okay, strong ties. Which means that if you want to go somewhere, as I said, if you go to Bergen to study, if there is a teacher there or someone who works in the university who is from your hometown, that is a big asset. Almost, almost like a first generation Pakistani when he comes home to the Punjab, he's like, well, I'm, I'm among my own. And, and similarly here. Whereas the people who live here in the second generation are now distinguishing between the first and the second because the first generation became as adults and they built their own sort of challenges to deal with. Um, they, they develop weak ties all over the place. <laughs> so, in other words, um, and they have uh, also they developed um, intercultural skills, which means that they become extremely skillful at negotiating between different cultural contexts, translating between different contexts. And um, the glue that ties them together is thin. It's a, it's, a, it's, a very, it's a very thin kind of integration. But it may be sufficient. It's like the kind of integration you get when you agree about stopping at traffic lights, abiding by the law, and voting. And apart from that, the uh, lonely Norwegian man who plays World of Warcraft doesn't really care what his neighbor does. Why should he? In other words, there is here, you might say here there is concern, there's moral concern. If anybody, uh, say a 17-year-old boy who's not supposed to drink, if he gets drunk on a Friday, on the next day everybody will know. And they try to make sure that it's not going to happen again. There's concern here, whereas here there is indifference. And I think there is something to be said for indifference. Okay? In these contexts. There's indifference, but there is also, I mean, a term which has been introduced also by, by some colleagues of mine who've been working in similar places and been working with uh, civility. Okay? Which means that here, yeah, in this kind of in this kind of environment, uh, you can be a flexible individual. You can shift between different kinds of social situations. You have lots of weak ties because it's uh, it is sometimes said about these suburbs that they are ghettos. And it may be the case in one or, the, in one or two uh, uh, cities. I mean, that you have letters in the sense that you have these closed uh, suburbs where people hardly ever up. I mean, we heard after the riots in France some years ago that there were people who lived in these um, working class uh, suburbs with many people from North Africa that they had never, they lived in Paris all their lives and they'd never seen the Eiffel Tower. Well, you would not have 
people who have lived in pure set all their lives who have never seen the floor. Which is you see in, in, in Oslo because they, they take the metro all the time. They go to school, they get educated, they work in other parts of the city. When they do something in the evening, they may take they may stay there and they play football or ice hockey, or then they go somewhere else to go to the cinema where they uh, where they encounter other people. So we get these uh, overlapping heterogeneous uh, um, kinds of social systems, whereas whereas if you're stuck in a small community, although it is the best metaphorical representation of the nation, because it's a community. Uh, my examples uh, were intended to show that downscaling the nation, thinking that since the nation is an imagined community, a real community must be the best representation of the nation, is wrong. It's not true. It doesn't, downscaling doesn't work in this case. Because when you downscale it, what you get is an isolate and, uh, uh, and a place with little mobility, with, with few of those social skills that you're actually going to need to maneuver in this kind of, uh, in this kind of universe. So, um, when we spoke about uh, cultural complexity in the new Norway, there was a lot of uh, uh, debate within the group. I mean, anthropologists really like sort of to undermine their own um, theories. Some of our colleagues didn't like the word cultural because culture is such a difficult term. It's an impossible term. It's been misused by so many people involved in identity politics. They didn't like complexity either. One of my PhD students, she really didn't like complexity. Because when you say that something is complex, it's really an offense to everybody else. Because then you say that something else is simple. Uh, so everything is complex. New. Now, they didn't like new either. Because, I mean, as one person said, well, we know quite a bit about the cultural complexity of the new Norway. Because we have so much identity politics. First with the indigenous people, then with the national minorities, and now with immigrants. What we want to know about is the cultural complexity of the old Norway. In fact, that the country was a lot more complex than historians have led us to believe before. Uh, and finally, Norway, that methodological nationalism. I mean, why limit yourself to selling one country? So the only word we were left with was in. You know, that nobody, nobody uh, uh, objected to that. So this is, uh, I mean, but, but this, uh, this kind of debate that we, uh, we, we had that debate in a serious way when we started out uh, on the project uh, many years ago. And, um, and it illustrates the difficulties we have. Uh, by trying to make uh, the concepts fit reality. So what we were trying to do, and what I've been trying to do now in a modest way, is to begin to redraw the maps of our countries. National identities are not going away. Okay, they're not, they're not, you know, they're not, they're not going away. They're not going to be replaced. I mean, that's one of the things that, one of the lessons we learned uh, from studies of globalization is that globalization does not create global people. And uh, mobility does not create people who don't feel uh, belonging to a uh, who don't have a sense of place. Okay, um, it doesn't. So the next question would then be: Okay, what kind of place is this? Uh, and, and how can that reality of that place be reconciled with the ideas you have about the nation? I think that in every country uh, there is a potential for devising or for adjusting or for defining uh, a national identity, not necessarily based on similarity, but on diversity. And since this uh, South African anthropologist, this was in the innocent early 1980s that he came, and it's Julian Kramer, and he still works as an anthropologist in the, in the civil service, 
uh, when he uh, spoke of the country as a tribal country, a tribal place, he, uh, he pointed out, in fact, that there is a lot of existing, pre-existing diversity, but it's unlocked. It's not talked about that diversity. And as a matter of fact, uh, if someone down here, I mean, what I'm talking about now is a pre-existing diversity and the need for intercultural skills to maneuver in a complex society. The kind of, kind of skill and the need for weak price in order to get around. In other words, the kind of complexity you learn by living in this deeply stigmatized uh, um, working class, Eastern Oslo, noisy, industrial, um, full of Muslims, uh, place called Furuset, and which you don't get by living in one of these quintessential um, communities that somehow are being used in, in postcards and in tourism to represent Norway. If you, so it's all it's down here, and he uh, doesn't drink alcohol, never serves alcohol, okay? He refuses his daughters to go out dancing. And he's against uh, sex before marriage, and he's in favor of uh, bad pornography. Um, not considered culturally different from the majority, not considered diverse, but is sometimes even, invite, even invited into government. Whereas there's someone up here, because this name, this like name is Corey Nielsen, okay? There's someone up here whose name is Abdullah Mohammed. And he says, I will not serve alcohol at home. And uh, my daughters should not go out dancing. And uh, I think pornography should be banned, okay? I'm really against homosexuality and sex before marriage. I think that's horrible. Then that is being written off as being a kind of cultural difference that we really cannot live with in this liberal society, that we really cannot tolerate, because it's simply uh, too much at odds with the values on which we build our society. Uh, so what I'm saying is that if, if, if first we discover the pre-existing diversity, we then see that uh, the heterogeneous suburb is in fact probably more in line with the real existing nation than the dense homogeneous community. One thing that I haven't spoken about, and uh, maybe we can do that during discussion, depending on, on what you'd like to, is what kind of person is this really? The individual. What kind of person is it? Is it just, is it a neoliberal consumer? Are we talking about this? Uh, or are we talking about uh, something else? If that, at least we can, we can say that the kind of person who is compatible with the, with the nation is not the social center. And this is where I, in, in my abstract, I mean, I didn't speak from the abstract. Uh, this is where uh, the anthropologist Louis Dumont comes in. Because Louis Dumont, uh, who was a specialist on India, and he had some rather rigid ideas, I think, about the difference between Indians and Europeans. He had good arguments, but he was, I mean, he had this on the French, sort of Russianist uh, attitude. Um, but, when he, but, he, but when he spoke about communalism and nationalism, his main point was that. With communalism, your first loyalty, first and last loyalty, goes towards your community, which is based on the, frequently on kinship or on, in the case of India, religion. Whereas with nationalism, you're an individual. So the nationalism, the nation, is, as he says, it's a community. It's a collective individual and a collective of individuals. So that's why that's the way the transition takes place in my analysis, between the first and the second generation of, of minorities in, in this area, is a transition to individualism. That the people we speak to, and we have a research project now, right now on young adults between 18 and 25, and we try to find out about the prospects and how they see, yeah, 
I'm finishing now, how, how they see their, their future lives. They would say, even the covered up Somali girls would say, I want to. You know, I want to become a nurse. You know? um, they wouldn't say, my family wants me to. Which is a very different thing. And the former is perfectly compatible with this idea of the nation. You see what I mean? Scattered heterogeneous to be tight networks. The, uh, the other one, probably not. Thank you very much for your interest in the advice and enjoy the presentation. So now the stage is open for discussion and you can make a question. Do you like to take one more? Yeah, we'll see how it goes. Okay. You know, when I was uh, listening to the second part of your talk, I was reminded of Durkheim's work on solidarity. Yes. And I wondered whether, I mean, it's probably true that the mechanical solidarity based on sameness is the village shell on the coast and then about the organic solidarity, but the question the nationalists would pose for the conclusion is, what is the source of solidarity in a community yes. that is very diverse? Yes, yes. Excellent. I mean, it's a, it's, that is a big question, isn't it? It's, it's, a, it's a variety of questions on what is the meaning of the word we. And yes, I've also been often reminded of, of Durkheim when thinking about these things. Mechanical solidarity, which he associates with traditional society, with a very limited division of labor. Where you somehow feel like one with your with your neighbour because you do the same thing. Whereas in organic solidarity, you feel I feel as an academic a great relief that I don't have to be a plumber, so I can actually get someone you know to fix my the, my kitchen fittings and and, and, and stuff when, when something goes wrong. Um, with organic solidarity, the source of uh, um, yes, we we've been we've been uh, trying to look at this. To some extent, one gets quite a lot in common nearly by living in the same place, I mean, in terms of culture. So cultural differences in these diverse areas are often exaggerated because we look, we, we, we're looking for what um, is different and not for that which is similar, which is often very substantial. Um, but that does not really help concerning your self-identification. I mean, who do I feel at one with? I mean, in a country like Mauritius, where I've been working before. Um, people have a lot in common culturally, but they're not necessarily aware of it. Because they, they, they have been, uh, there has been this obsession with cultural difference. So they see the differences and not the similarities. They discount the similarities when they you know, come to Europe. And then they realize, wow, you know, I've got so much in common with other Mauritians. And there are even Mauritians who claim that they can tell if someone is Mauritian on the street. By, you know, by body language and, uh, that's all. I don't think it's true, but, uh, are people tend. So, but that doesn't help if, if your identity, your, your self-understanding is taking you somewhere else. I think shared experiences, maybe having gone through some kind of ordeal, you know, uh, the Second World War was a big sort of political, was a big boost for Norwegian nationalism. The nation had been very divided in the 1930s, so that the people who celebrated May Day, 1st of May, the workers, uh, the day of struggle, did not celebrate the 17th of May. Which they, which they saw as being treason to the working class, because that was a you know, vertical solidarity with the bourgeoisie. Whereas after 1945, everyone went to the national celebration because they've gone through this ordeal together. And uh, in, in Norway, I mean, less than two years ago, we had this terrible terrorist attack from the right-wing um, uh, terrorists okay, who killed the 77 people, some of them with a minority background. I mean, some of the people who were at that summer camp, uh, organized by the Young Labour, 
had a minority background and had Muslim names. Uh, and there was a feeling in the weeks afterwards that the, now that one had gone through this crisis and emerged out of it, uh, there was a strong sense of commonality which cut across uh, ethnic boundaries. So having some shared experiences uh, that uh, have made a difference, maybe having gone through some sense of crisis and come out of it together, that sort of thing could create a sense of, of, of being me. It's always a good idea, as you know. I mean, all identities are relations. So having been being capable of comparing yourself to someone else, you know, we are standing up against you know, the Swedes or the, you know, whatever. Um, yes, that's the beginning. I mean, it's not a final answer, but uh, it's being able to reflect. Yes, please, Gabriela. I have lots of questions. I'll yeah, start with two, maybe yes. <laughs> I just wanted to ask you, the weak ties on a national level, oh, can we equate that necessarily with indifference on the local level? Mm -hmm. And I also thought um, in terms of you know ethnic community organization, mm -hmm. in terms of the expressions of we you know, identity politics and partners and bonding and bridging, I just thought it very interesting how is within these ethnic communities the expression of yes. or we yeah. in terms of organizations? Yes, good, very, very good question, very complicated question. Yes, you can pay yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, yes, I mean, the weak, uh, yes, uh, the, the weak ties, yes. Uh, because perhaps sometimes uh, uh, one gets the feeling that in order to have uh, anything at all in common, you've got to have everything in common. I mean, like, you, you, you place the threshold so high that in order to be allowed in, you have to love cross-country skiing. I mean, you have to. I mean, I you know, some, lots of things you have to do, which is very, very hard for foreigners. I mean, in, in Amsterdam, they have courses, you know, for small women to learn to ride a bike because they feel like you want to live in this society. I mean, you have to. Of course, you have to ride a bike. Uh, that's part of being human, you know. Uh, and maybe they shouldn't. Maybe they. Maybe they should reconcile themselves with the fact that. Uh, you know, I mean, Jung Elster once said, the social philosopher, that a society is a place where people stop at red traffic lights. That's a very minimal definition of a society. And we have to do better than that. The question is, how much better? Maybe it's enough that you cheer for the same football team. I mean, the, uh, what was it in the, I mean, in the early 90s, uh, you know, the, the Tempest. Yeah. yeah, the Tempest. <laughs> people don't like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes, but I think, yeah, but you, you, I mean, uh, what I'm getting at is really that maybe, maybe we price are sufficient. Maybe they, you know, they maybe we in fact can be sufficient because uh, you know, of a variety of uh, for a variety of reasons. And it is also very old that the pra the practice of remittances, I mean, sending remittances, is considered a problem in European countries. But the same European countries say give foreign aid to the same countries. Whereas the practice of sending remittances is seen as as being problematic because it shows that people are not fully settled there. So maybe we should also reconcile ourselves with the fact of transnationalism. Thank you. Yeah. I, I grew up in an area of London which sounds fairly similar to Brazil and in South London where it's very diverse, lots of communities from all over the world. And then while you were talking I was trying to think about what it is that I kind of developed as a sense of place and, mm -hmm. um, and really I felt that it wasn't a national sense of place, no. it, was a, it was quite a local sense of place and it was very much defined by South London versus North London. And yeah. um, it was a sense of we belong here because we're South London and mm -hmm. they over there they're different because they're from North London. Yeah. Um, and that was 
true across all of the different ethnic groups there. Um, but it also brought up for me something possibly problematic because you've also got in a lot of areas of London now what we're calling post-life wars. So, you know, groups of young people who feel completely tied to their postcode but aren't actually able to go into other areas as well. So, uh, so there's a problem there with the idea of just creating a sense of place as yes. defined against somebody else and yes. that then potentially being a barrier rather than a, a help to gain a bigger, possibly national identity. Yes, that's right. Yes, very, very well put. Yeah, I was going to say something about that. In fact, if I could somehow slip my mind that uh, many of the, uh, I mean, young young people that are fugitives, who we know them, I mean, and who lived there maybe all their lives, they feel very attached to that place, but they find it very hard to identify with Norway. And so that that's very, you know, it's a very simple thing. They might they might even feel that they identify with Eastern Oslo, uh, similarly to what you're saying about London, as opposed. To the hopeless sort of uh, snobs on the west side, you know, who wear different clothes, listen to different music, and really haven't understood what life is about, because they're all sort of interested in the wrong, the wrong, uh, the wrong things. But well, the, the the short answer is that uh, if you have uh, overlapping, I mean, uh, as, as many overlapping commitments and conflicting loyalties as you can, you know, it it, it, it tends to help. Uh, but of course, if you invest everything. In your sort of locality or network, I mean, you, you get these sort of very dense homogeneous. I think Sandra Walden wrote really well about this in the 1980s, where she compared two parts of London. One which was very homogeneous, people lived in the same area, you know, they, 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 their wives, you know, their children, and so on. And then you had sort of Battersea, which was a bit more like this, you know, where in fact the entrance ticket was very cheap because you only had to move in. And then you were part of the local community, but it didn't offer much in return either. So there may be a freedom security trade-off here as well, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but in in, uh, in in the other part of London that she was writing about in the Tower Hamlets region at the time, early 1980s, there were ethnic gangs. You know, there were people who wouldn't see eye to eye with each other. I mean, people who were afraid of each other. And they were um, basically very reminiscent to what you're saying. So something intermediate here, something intermediate, uh, might be a way of, of thinking about this. In terms of social integration. Yes. Uh, also, what do you think makes the both place and kinship sort of symbols and identity stronger than the other ones? Because what I notice it's usually triumphs over other. Because, for example, academics are scattered, right? Different mm -hmm. interests, different people who play tennis and things, but you still don't identify with them, don't have, even though you do have short experience, rituals, various games and things, maybe a part of. Football, it might be sometimes an exception. Mm -hmm. Still, the sort of national usually triumphs over other mm -hmm. forms of solidarity mm -hmm. and identity. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was wondering, could you sort of um, see why this symbolism, even if a person has lived away, for example, of yes. a place? Yes, it's an interesting, it's very, it's very interesting. But I think it is because, you know, I think, you know, that's one thing, you know, Bentley Hansen says in the first chapter of Magic Unities, he said that, uh, I mean, I know he somewhat says it in passing, he doesn't really pursue it, that nationalism uh, has less in common with ideologies such as liberalism and socialism than with phenomena such as religion and kinship. In other words, that uh, when it works, it's, it's deeply emotional. And what they're telling you, I mean, what, what nationalist ideology tells you is that you've got, you've got this person, okay? And you have this uh, 
settle emotion because it's emotional, right? It's not here, it's here. And you love your family and the place you grew up and so on and so forth. And what they tell you is that, well, there are those no obvious any old persons you grew up with, and I'll find your own place because it was a Norwegian place, and a Norwegian person, and therefore you should love your nation. And if you don't, you know, you betray your childhood memories, because your childhood memories are national. Uh, but why that works so well? Well, it doesn't always work well. It doesn't work well in Italy. Yeah, but do you think it might have something to do, again, with the sort of mystification, like the degree of emotions instead of reason. For example, people who are bound by a certain ideology think critically about it, but they don't think crit as much critically about those emotional things. Mm -hmm. Because you can try there's no simple answer to this, but, and I cannot say why, but, but I'm sure other people in the audience might. Uh, but it, it has something to do with the way in which it attaches itself to, to your emotional life and to the way you see yourself as a person. Who am I, you know? And who is the primary we? Uh, my childhood memories, uh, the place I grew up, my family, and they are part of that nation. One category of people who should be sort of studied more, and we should think more about, are the people you are half and half. Okay? There's very little research on this. There's a lot of research, I mean, certainly in, 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 in the European context, of various minorities and, uh, and even cultural hybridity. But in certain parts of Oslo, not in Fulisat, but in certain parts of inner eastern Oslo, quite a few children, maybe more than half, have one Norwegian and one foreign parent. And what kind of sort of national identity today? Well, certainly a more complicated one. But no, I don't, I don't have another answer that, uh, than what I've given you. But maybe someone else will. Yeah. Yes? What about, I mean, the notion of place and kinship are quite quite abstract in themselves, and the mantle of all kinds of identities other than national. Yes. Um, so the part of having a national identity is to some extent an uh, institution too, whether you're included or excluded from non institution, education, civil service, physical yes. parties, and so forth. Yes. Uh, so what about these uh, second generation or third generation immigrants? To yes. what extent are they part of any kind of institutional mainstream? Yes, uh, they are to a great extent. I mean, they, they get, you know, uh, they have, in fact, a high, higher level of us with secondary education than the higher education than they think we just, because to them something is at stake. And they take what we call the early subjects. I mean, they, they become, you know, the early, early subjects, they become lawyer, lawyer, doctor, and engineer. Is that uh, across all the various groups? No, uh, some variation. I'm, I'm talking a lot about Pakistan. Yeah. Okay. There are variations. But by and large, they are included to great extent, and in many other countries, because Norway is doing so well economically. So there are jobs, you know, for, for virtually, virtually everybody. But, uh, I mean, let's think about the, the current examples, the places in the world where nationalism doesn't work. I mean, take Afghanistan. I mean, the attempt to create a national identity there, where you have very strong uh, kinship based and uh, clan based identities. Or Somalia, the only Virtually the only ethnic homogeneous country in all of Africa, and also the only country which has really fallen apart. And not because of cultural difference, not because of religion or race, but because of a different mode of, as you say, I mean, attaching yourself to a place in tension. It's a different way of doing that. Or Libya, which is also not really a functioning nation in the sense that people feel at one with the imagined community of Libyans. So, uh, so it, it's, there's no automatic, and I think that's the institutional dimension is very important because it offers something. In the past, it would have been offered <coughs> in your locality. It would have been offered in car. You know, you would have gotten your career there, someone to marry, a place to live, security, a job, 
the future. Whereas nowadays it's been that that kind of uh, uh, that kind of imaginary has been projected onto this abstract national scale and increasingly transnational. That's also why I'm saying that maybe these transnational uh, communities are more sort of in line with uh, the 21st century than the the more active and rooted ones. Lots of people want to yes. Um, I can see how seductive it can it can be to and it is to, to say that you know the the big ties uh, represent more or better this new Norway mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to you know this old ties and that in fact and how provocative it sounds to, to to say that apparently the second generation immigrants represent better this new Norway mm -hmm. yeah. than the ethnic Norwegians and. I, I really like what you said, that, that the question would be how to, at the moment, you have like both types persisting. Mm -hmm. So yes. how do you make sense of a nation where these two kind of types of yep. nation persist or yep. live together, yep. sharing the types? Yes, it's a, it's a big, it's a big, it's a big issue. Uh, and we're beginning to, to think about it again. Uh, but let's say that somewhere between these, and as, as I Intimate that in at the end of my talk, maybe what we're really talking about here is a neoliberal individual. If, if meritocracy, which is an extreme form of liberal individualism, and which is never sort of fully achieved anywhere, but if, if, uh, if you get the perfect meritocratic society based on individual sort of skill and mission and so on, um, where people uh, are sort of primed to become skilled consumers and producers, in, in a competitive individualist society, then uh, this, this system based on weak ties will work. But of course, in practice, you, all, you always have the sort of the uh, sort of strength of cultural intimacy and uh, and all these other things pulling you back. Yes, yes. But it's a matter of finding a balance here. And the way the world is moving now, it's I would say that you know most of our societies are moving from here to here. And we have to find a way of dealing with that. But of course it's provocative. I couldn't say this back home without receiving death threats. Because being critical of nationalism in a country like that makes you always feel like you're an atheist in a Muslim country, you see. Anyway. Yes, please. I'm interested to know how much um, your national cultural institutions, your national museums represent the nation. Yes. And obviously, you know, most school trips. All kids go to the museums to find out about <coughs> it. Does Norway's cultural institution still do the foundation of the scenario? Mm -hmm. Are the Stalin representatives, for instance? Yeah. That's a good question, and it's a big one. And uh, it would be interesting here to, to develop some contrast between Norway and Sweden. Because in Sweden, one has redefined the nation very much in multiculturalist terms. You know, I mean, I'm also in Denmark, we make jokes about the streets all the time because they're so sanctimonious and politically correct. Yeah. Whereas Norway is somewhere between, you know, somewhere intermediate between the Swedish and the Danish situation in this respect. Though it, there, have, there have been no, there have been a few attempts. For example, there's an outdoor museum at Big Derby Oslo, an outdoor museum representing rural culture from various periods and various parts of the country. And they've now included a, an immigrant flat from the 1970s. It's a typical Pakistani fact, you know, full you know, crisp integrations and uh, golden colours and, you know, <laughs> that sort of thing. Uh, because, you know, this is now part of my history, is the argument. So there are some, yeah, there are some uh, weak attempts to try to adjust this. But uh, I find this very interesting, 
uh, for a variety of reasons, and also because a few years ago, a three-volume work was published by a number of historians and sociologists called um, uh, A History of Immigration to Norway. And they didn't just start in the 1970s, or in the 1950s, when we got the first of the Hungarians after 1956, but they started in the 9th century. Okay? History of Immigration started in the 9th century, showing that every time something remotely interesting has happened in the country, foreigners have been involved. There has been this kind of interchange. Several of the Viking kings were born in the, in the Baltic states. They weren't even Norwegian. But they said they had a, just like in, I mean, I know if you watch Game of Thrones, I mean, they had a claim. They had a claim to the throne. <laughs> and they came, and they fought their battle and won, and became kings. And, and got the Norwegian name, just as such as Hyderabad, but they were actually from the Baltic So they show that uh, the history of Norway is the history of uh, transnational connections. Uh, and to me, this was not just a history of uh, immigration, it was an alternative way of, uh, of uh, narrating the history of the country. So yes, uh, there is some, something going on there, uh, but probably, probably not enough. Well, that's up to other people to decide. But as someone said, I mean, to me, you know, why, why study the cultural context of the new world? We should be looking more at the cultural context of the old world. And some people have done so. But on the whole, the myths are being retold. There was a very popular film just a few years ago about one of the resistance heroes from the Second World War. And you know, the story of the resistance has been, has been made more complicated in some European countries. In the Netherlands, for example, where there have been, you know, books and films about, uh, for example, uh, love affairs between uh, Dutch girls and German soldiers, which happened in Norway as well, but it's still surrounded by shame. The fact that some of these girls had children by Nazi soldiers. So this book, this film, which was hugely popular about three years ago, it told the central myth of the occupation and the resistance, basically along the same lines as it would have been told in 1946, with no revisions. Okay. So there, there's the continuity. Yeah. Yes? Um, your talk made me think about the ways that nation states determine who can belong and who can't. So, who can be Norway and who can't in terms of citizenship regimes and naturalization regimes. And I was thinking, what happens if you replace person in your diagram with yeah. citizen? Yes. And linking that back to the way nations administer kind of who can belong mm -hmm. in terms of juice soli and juice sanguinis. So, yes. Yes, blood and kinship and place. Um, yep. Just, yeah, just Absolutely. Really. Yes, obviously, I mean, the use of this and the use of is, you know, it's, it's basically, it's a few ways of thinking about what does it mean to belong. Is it because we live in the same place or is it because we have the same ancestors? And those the two ways of posing the question would generate very different answers. Uh, regarding citizenship, um, I mean, if, we, if we're interested in the sort of fuzzy boundaries around nations nowadays, uh, exploring dual citizenship would be interesting. I mean, who accepts it and who doesn't? There's been a swing. I mean, in the 1990s, there was an increase, you know, in the number of countries in Europe that accepted dual citizenship. And now many of them have, have got, uh, somehow changed their minds. So I think Sweden is the only one now of the Nordic countries which still, still accepts uh, dual citizenship. But being a citizen is, is not enough. I mean, that's not really. I mean, it's an interesting topic. It's not really the topic of my talk. It's more like I uh, the, what, what goes on in civil society. Um, uh, being a citizen isn't enough, uh, although it helps. That's only when you live in the welfare state. Yeah. 
Yes, sir. Yeah, okay. yeah. You're saying that, that this uh, immigrant sub of food, is that, that that's a better picture of, of Norway today and, and even more so tomorrow's Norway than the Kragerö was the other day on the other. So, what I'm thinking that, well, perhaps Nydragen is a very good picture, because the majority of Norwegians would live like in, in, in suburbs which are fairly ethnically homogenous. Uh, so, and, and so, so, that would be the, the kind of places that most of us would live in. Then that, those places have some characteristics of of fears that like uh, like the indifference and we tired. So it's not like people get upset if some seventeen year old can throw the trunk. That would be like, like the, the normal yeah. middle class suburb. But they also have some characteristics of of Kragerød and that I mean it's fairly ethnically homogeneous. Yeah. There are immigrants, but they are well integrated and so on. So, so I think I mean just just it's it's a little bit of a false dilemma. Like either either yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah. Well, those were the two places where I brought my material from. Okay, yeah. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> so that was a contrast I felt like uh, making. But also in in the context of debating. Exactly. No, I understand that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The, the, you know what? What should the nation be on that level of national imagery? It is. It is absolutely true what you say. I mean, just like in uh, in, in most other sort of uh, uh, affluent uh, Western societies, that uh, many people do not necessarily feel a strong sense of attachment to where they live. I mean, globalization has taken place really fast in Norway. A bit, a bit later than in Sweden. When I mean, the northern half of Sweden was basically depopulated. I mean, more, more or less than that. <laughs> and uh, people tell you can you can do that and they'll give you a job in the industry in the, you know, in Nederland or in Yotoboy. But uh, we can't feed you if you're going to continue to live that. Whereas in all organizations, it could somewhat later. But this means that lots of people live in these fairly non-discreet suburban areas uh, where they don't feel as much as attachment is true. But that level of sympathy, the small community where everybody knows everybody, is seen as the ideal, like a white shot. Uh, and the idea is still very strong that uh, the good life is either in the small town or in, or in the country. But then why does nobody want to live there? I mean, one thing I didn't mention about Calgary is that uh, they have a problem, like in many of these small towns, where maybe the, uh, the main sort of the industry has been closed down, so there isn't much work. And it's been closed down because of South Korean competition. Not the shipyard, yeah. I mean, everything has been outsourced to... Uh, to, uh, to East Asia and, uh, and other, and you can't get a job as a sailor. The last Norwegian sailor is probably uh, dates back to the late 1970s. Since then, I mean, all the officers are Norwegian, and all the sailors are Filipinos and, and, and from other countries. So, so, so in other words, people move out, young people move out, and they don't come back. I mean, it's not in Sweden you've got to be uh, that you know, the, the, the countryside, I mean, that, yeah, that old people, people predominate. So, uh, yes, but at the level of national imagery, it's a community, it's a gemeinschaft. Yeah, yeah. But is that a little bit special for, for Norway? I, say, I, I come from Sweden, which yeah. you recognize, I think. Uh, so, so we don't really suspect that. But we don't really have those like, gemeinschaft community in the same I mean, we have, of course, national imagery, so it's striking that Norway is a little bit. Special in this regard. I think, yeah, I think Sweden is more sorry. I think Sweden okay. is more comparable to to Britain uh -huh. because Sweden doesn't really have national identity, but an imperial identity. <laughs> 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 so it's more in Sweden is being the universal human. <laughs> 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 
this is a big topic again. <laughs> 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 if you take the Swedish national anthem, uh, Sweden is not mentioned. I shall live, I shall die in Norden. In the North. In the North, yeah. I mean, implicitly. Uh, our home is Sweden plus these little yes. stupid countries. <laughs> 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 no, but, but, but there are some very important, I think, differences in the grammars of national identity, which is quite clear. I mean, in Sweden, national identity in the 20th century was formative, it was future oriented. Sweden was the America of the North, whereas in Norway it was backwards looking, uh, romanticizing the rural life and, uh, uh, and uh, seeing, you know, that's necessarily you know, in mean, the rural community. As the main um, sort of as, as, a, as a place where you could have a good life, and in this it resembles the nationalism you find in, I mean, in Slovakia, in some of the Baltic states. I mean, in, in some of those smaller countries between, you might say, the big empires between the German and the Russian. And Sweden is an exception because Sweden had its had its own empire. Mm -hmm. Thank you. We have just five minutes left, so one last yeah. very quick question and answer. Yeah, I think we should first. Yeah, um, I wanted to ask. Uh, how does the how does uh, the sense of uh, a community differing in like the in the small town where everyone knows each other and uh, in in the bigger industrial uh, towns where, where the relations are of anonymous individuals mm -hmm. is it is it um, in in the more rural areas is it more sense of uh, ethnicity or and mm -hmm. in the rural areas more uh, uh, sense of nationality or what is it? Uh, well, it's uh, you know it's a sort of simple answer, but yes, I mean I would say that in the, in the small town, I mean what's if, if I may use an obsolete term, what is dysfunctional uh, about the small town in the, in the current uh, situation is that the people who spend yes. There, they get very few of these weeks. In other words, there are few ways of getting out. It's, it, it can be secure to be inside, but there are few avenues of mobility out of it. Whereas, uh, whereas here you have uh, uh, you have a weak integration, but you've got lots of sort of tentacles pointing in different directions, even transnational. Um, whether it's ethnicity or something else, it, it's a miracle question, I and mean, it depends. But there are situations, there are contexts. Okay, even here, where ethnicity may be crucial. And the problem in Fulisa, I haven't spoken about that, but that's another lecture yet. I mean, the real problem seen by other people who live there is the fact that the, there are too many Pakistan, that the Pakistani are more than 50%. Which means that whenever something happens, a public event or some kind, many other feel that is dominated by the Pakistanis. Yeah. Uh, um, so, um, in that respect, yes. And they are very often connected to kin ties and origin, same origins and, uh, and, uh, and so on. In, in this, from the same parts of, of Pakistan and Punjab. You know, most of the region of Pakistan, they come from a very small cluster of villages, about halfway between Islamabad and Islam. And you can go there, and you can notice, I mean, that there are people there who you can, you can almost stop people on the street and speak the region to them. Because yeah, there's such a critical mass of people in some of these towns who have lived in them. And who have come back. Yes? Um, I'm just curious how Norway has differentiated itself. You noted that Sweden was an imperial power, mm -hmm. and thus has not mm -hmm. um, identified itself in the same way as Norway. How has Norway differentiated itself from Sweden and Denmark, mm -hmm. and how is it 
differentiated itself from the rest of Europe. Yeah. And how has that changed with the influx of immigration? Mm -hmm. Yeah, good question. Great question. Because, uh, and this is useful. The short answer is that the fact that there haven't really been any serious ethnic crimes, and the fact that integration is on a whole going rather well. I mean, in the sense that the second generation, they get educated, they get jobs. There is a bit of discrimination, and there's a bit of Islamophobia, but uh, not as bad as in many other places. It's a bit of a miracle when you look at the historical origins of Norwegian nationalism as a very romantic uh, kind of ethnic nationalism, as opposed to what we had in Sweden, and even in Denmark, where it was very urban. You know, Danish nationalism centered around Copenhagen, which was a cosmopolitan city, and had been for centuries. It was Norwegian's capital. Whereas we had nothing, we didn't have a crowd military history, we didn't have a crowd cultural history, we had to go to Denmark even to get our books published. You know, Ibsen, Henrik Ibsen, had to go to Copenhagen, because that's where the publishers were. Uh, so uh, so it, was a, it was a remote periphery, uh, and with a very strong sense of, uh, of ethnic, cultural, rooted, historically based identity. So, so that's why I'm saying that uh, the transition to uh, an urban, multicultural society uh, with, with, with no more, as it were, serious crises and difficulties that we had is, is almost a miracle. And it's quite interesting how, for, I mean, that's, that's a, you know, an issue for really comparative historians of nationalism, how from very different sources, I mean, nations which have very, very different histories can end up with pretty much the same results, similar results. If you take the debates, some of the debates that we've been touching upon during this seminar about multiculturalism, about rights, about these, this sort of juggling of different perceptions of the person and relationship to the nation and what should the national uh, include, they're quite similar across the board. Yes, there are differences. Yes, there are new Nazis in, in Greece and uh, we, you know, the, the, and, and, and so on. But but you, you can discern, you can recognise the same problematics and the same way of raising the questions. Only that they are, you know, yeah. you see what I mean? Um, it's striking. I mean, even if you take the three Scandinavian countries, they're so different histories, and they end up almost in the same place. Unfortunately, if we have time for one more. Okay. I think it was you. Yeah, I just wanted to ask you about the. Uh, the migrant communities in those So, do you talk about how they relate to the nation? But do they develop other communities, cross ethnic communities, that are not really directed towards the Norwegian state? Yes, there are some NGOs. I mean, uh, there are. And so you have cross ethnic ties. Uh, I mean, there are anti racist organizations, for mm -hmm. example. There would, there's something called the Islamic Council, which also unites. I mean, there was a Bosnian. There's been a Norwegian continent, we've been head of that. Um, so, uh, yes. And there are other cross cutting ties as well. As I just mentioned, I mean, the Minister of Culture, I mean, she has, she's a second generation, I mean, uh, her parents from Afghanistan. Um, in sport, in various domains. Uh, and there's also an interesting internal hierarchy among immigrants between different ethnic categories. With the Pakistan being the most powerful. Because uh, they've they been there, you know, since the 60s, I believe. They were most numerous as well. Okay.